I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Good evening and welcome to this episode of I-94. This is our last episode of 2019 and I just want to thank everyone that listens, has contributed, writers, translators, authors, etc. Neil, thank you. Uh, we had a really great year. It was our second full year. Um, I think this is our 80th show. So, And tonight we're uh, proud to welcome Jonathan Foyles. Uh, he has a... What one was this published, Jonathan? Um, in August. In August. Yeah. So a new book called This City is Killing Me. Let's give it a hand for Jonathan. So let's go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Under Kennedy, mm -hmm. he passed a mental illness rights. It's essentially Bill, or we yeah. were? Yeah, so he passed a law to establish um, community mental health centers. Um, and it was pretty toothless. Nothing much really happened from it. But it, it sort of coalesced a moment in history where you had um, a move towards deinstitutionalization, so removing people from your sort of stereotypical asylums and such, you know, think like one sort of the cuckoo's nest or whatever, um, and moving them out to the community. And then sort of what helped enable that at the time um, is you also had an increase in availability of drugs that, that worked better than the drugs they had before. So you, we, people weren't relying so much on like lobotomies, um, electroshock therapy and other things like that, but there were um, pretty powerful drugs, um, but drugs that could be administered in the community um, that one could take and live out amongst people. So those two kind of twin things combined um, to make a push to create community mental health. And Kennedy's sister mm -hmm. had a lobotomy, yes. correct? Yes. yes, and was left with the middle functioning of a, like a toddler. And a lot of people, yeah. I, did, I didn't, I knew, I learned that recently and mm -hmm. then I uh, read it again in your book. And then, so then we went on, and then during Reagan, I, mm -hmm. I remember this, what, the city I grew up in had a state mental mm -hmm. uh, psychiatric facility, and that got shut down. Yep. Um, moving on, it was kind of a slow kill after that, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, yeah. I know in, in, in Chicago, they would chip away at it, chip mm -hmm. away at it, chip away at it, and then I believe it was 2009, it was like $4.5 billion in cuts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And then after that, of course, we had Rahm Emanuel, who just closed a bunch of the hospitals. And Jonathan and I were talking about this before the show. I, I work in a public library. And it was visibly noticeable when they closed mm -hmm. these facilities because obviously we're a place that anyone can go to. Mm -hmm. And our uh, incidents with you know, severely mentally ill people went way, way up. And we were actually talking about doing a prototype of a, a mobile social worker. I don't oh, know cool. if you've heard about this. I have, yeah. Some of the libraries are starting to do this. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mike's here. Welcome, Hello. Mike. Hi. Sorry, I'm late. Mike's late. Uh, I just want to say Jamie has dysentery, so he's not here, too. I just, <laughs> he has got terrible, terrible, terrible diarrhea, and I wanted to just let you know that because he's going to get mad at me. So. <laughs> so anyway, Mike, we were just talking about sort of the, not sort of, we were talking about the history of mental health in America. Um, it used to be insane asylums, lobotomies, and medication, and now it's 
it's all over the place. Yeah, there was something in, in your book that I didn't know about mm -hmm. uh, JFK's sister. Yeah. Rosemary. Yeah. She mm -hmm. had a forced lobotomy? She did, yeah, and um, was left pretty much a vegetable um, afterwards. And yeah. you're speculating when you say that was kind of the cause of... Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more probably more complex than just sort of a simple A to B uh, relationship. But, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's improbable to think, like, oh, JFK saw what sort of the system as it was working did to his sister and wanted to think of something different. Have you looked at how how the funding for that change has progressed over time? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, there's never there's never really been a time where we've done a good job at it. You know, I think what you see just sort of the general trend is anytime um, things get tough or get tight, mental health care is typically one of the first things that gets cut. You know, and the, the wake of the recession, like states across the board flash money from um, their mental health services. And of course, in Chicago, we have probably the, a more egregious example of that with Rahm Emanuel. Um, but it's it's not just a Chicago or an Illinois thing. I mean, it's just across the board, people make cuts. What did we close? How, how many? Um, he closed six out of what were then 12. Um, during the heyday, there were 18. Um, that steadily got chipped away. Um, and the, the thought of sort of activists and people is that Daly would have closed a ton, a ton too, but he was just somewhat more attended what people thought of him, you know, yeah. um, like Migsfield and that uh, set aside, and that Rom didn't really care, you know, so, um, so Rom was just like, I'm just going to slash and burn. Um, and it, since he closed the six, one of them is privatized, so there are just like five clinics now um, that serve a population of like three million people. And, and which one are you at? Um, I'm not at one right now. I'm Right now I'm in private practice. When I wrote the book, I was um, in the outpatient psychiatry department at Mount Sinai Hospital. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's get into the meat of the book. Mm -hmm. Why did... Jonathan, why don't you tell us why you wrote this book? Um, the City is kill Killing Me, the secondary title is Community Trauma and Toxic Stress in Urban America. And if you live in a major city, and, and I imagine if you live in suburbs and smaller towns and things, you know, we see people that are uh, visibly sick or mm -hmm. ill. I don't know what the proper terminology is, and not being taken care of, and you mm -hmm. see this all the time. So can you go into a little bit why you wrote this book and then we can get into some of the case histories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to sort of put a name to something that uh, I was seeing in my work, and you know, not just me, my coworkers, and certainly my my clients knew it too. And that's uh, you know, they they come in. I would do an intake interview with all the new clients, and so you talk about sort of what their symptoms are, how long they've been going on, um, how they've been interfering with their life, and what brings them in, and whatnot. Um, and that. But I've, uh, you know, and that at the end of that, you arrive at a diagnosis from the you know diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, um, and that only felt like kind of telling half the story to me, um, because sort of wrapped in there in ways that like the DSM or sort of a lot of the current models that I had at my disposal didn't really take account of are like you know these stories of uh, closing mental health clinics and closing schools and um, rapidly dwindling resources in communities and and all of these things go into the the stew of what makes somebody either thrive or, or suffer, um, you know, in body and in mind. Um, and so I felt that even though practitioners like myself kind of had an idea of what was going on, we didn't really have an adequate language to talk about it. Um, and then I think too, so that was kind of part of it in terms of addressing folks like myself, but also I think um, friends, family, um, and sort of the questions they had about my work, I could tell that they didn't quite, or grasp sort of the, the whole picture, what went into it. You know, I uh, wrote some smaller pieces kind of drawing on the same themes before this, um, 
and had people who knew what I, I felt like knew what I did quite a bit were like, oh, I, I didn't know it was like that. You know, I didn't know people experienced things like that. And, you know, well-meaning people. Um, and so it just kind of made me think like, okay, there's stuff that I'm seeing on the ground um, that other people don't know about, and I think they should. Well, and getting to the DSM, too, uh, what are the initials? Diagnostic Di Statistical Manual of yes. Disorders. Of, of yes. Disorders. So we're, we're very good, Mike. Did your, did your homework. <laughs> you know, we're looking at a book mm -hmm. that's summing up people's mental health. Yeah. And you can't, a lot of these things you can't pinpoint. And obviously what you talk about in the book is you know, people's backgrounds. Yeah. Um, trauma, poverty, uh, no access to health care, including mental health facilities. And as, we, uh, as I know, and I, I'm sure a lot of people know, you know, psychiatry is an, an early science. You know, oh, yeah. it's not, we, don't, we still don't know a lot about the brain. The brain's mm -hmm. still a great mystery. And, and to just, and I know there has to be some kind of formula for billing and things like that, mm -hmm. but to just, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Limit people to this book, and, mm -hmm. and you can't see it because I'm on the radio, but I'm holding my fingers <laughs> up like I have a big, thick book in my hand. It's, it's, I know there has to be something, but there's got to be more. There's, yeah. Do you think that's a legitimate argument? Oh, I think so. I mean, I think the DSM is inherently limiting. I mean, there are lots of really good critiques to, um, to make about it, um, some of which I'm working on for my second book, you know. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think it, it can't ca encapsulate everything. And even aside from sort of the theoretical things like that, you know, the DSM is uh, in its formulation, as many would contend, myself included, that's overly um, indebted to the uh, medical community and sort of psychotropic medication and whatnot. You know, a lot of what ends up in the DSM is conveniently what we have medications to treat, um, which of course makes sense in a way, right? Because then you, you pose a problem, you want to have a nice, tidy solution. But it also means there a lot, there's a lot of stuff going on sort of at the bounds, um, like at what I write about in the book, that doesn't end up in there, even though we know that it plays a role. Absolutely, and I'm sure it's a lot of financials, too. That oh, yeah. So you can pull this diagnosis out of a book and then prescribe this medication. That's, mm -hmm. that's yeah, that's the interesting thing. And so you talk a little bit about medication in the book, too, and, and I just, the reason I want to get into this background is mm -hmm. I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with some of the things that a lot of our listeners might not be, but you talked about some of the early antidepressants. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about those? One of them, I remember, gives you uh, Parkinson's-like sy symptoms. Yeah, yeah, so some of the early antipsychotics, including ones that are still in use, they can give you, like, Parkinsonian-like tremors. Um, it's known as tardive dyskinesia, um, and those are, uh, you know, pretty much irreversible. I mean, if you catch it really early, perhaps you can, can medicate it. Um, but, you know, it can lead to, um, and you, if you've encountered someone with a serious mental illness who's medicated for all, you might notice that they, they shake. Um, uh, not ones that we use so much anymore, but ones we used prior would cause people to um, do what they nickname like the Thorazine shuffle, like you would lose your center of balance, so you'd sort of always look like you're almost following, falling because you'd be trying to catch yourself. Yeah, I think they say that about Seroquel too, don't they? Um, they don't say it, but it, I mean, it, it's that, that can it's happen, there. I think. Yeah, it's there. Yeah. And, you know, and it's not even antipsychotics. Like some of the early antidepressants, you know, there's MAOI inhibitors, which we don't use that much anymore, would come with a whole list of, like, foods you couldn't eat anymore. You know, it's like the professor who uh, taught me some of this stuff would see. He would just, when those were in heyday, would tell um, patients to imagine, like, not being able to eat, like, pepperoni pizza and a beer because you couldn't have, like, encased meats, cheese, you know, beer and other stuff like that. So, yeah, very limiting. Let's uh let's talk about some of the case histories. Yeah. And uh, you started out with somebody named Jacqueline. You mm -hmm. used 
uh, uh, pseudonyms. Yeah, they're all pseudonyms. Yeah. yeah, and certain details have been changed and whatnot. But there's this scene with, with Jacqueline in the beginning. I call it a scene. It mm -hmm. actually happened. Um, where you, you disclose some personal mm -hmm. information. Is, mm -hmm. is that against standard practice? Um, or not? Perhaps it's like bending the rules. I mean, they're, they're like, there aren't like a lot of hard and fast rules. I mean, the, the ones that are important, like don't have sexual relations with your patients and stuff. Um, but in terms of like boundaries, like what you say and what you don't say with your, your patients, I mean, there are general guidelines and rules of thumb. There's not a lot that's necessarily set in stone. A lot of it is about about feel, you know, and, and I'll certainly encourage, like when I teach or when I um, have had interns, you know, encourage them, if you think about saying something and you're kind of on the borderline, like err on the side of don't, you know, because there's a lot that, um, you know, because being a therapist, it's not relating to someone like a friend or a colleague. So there's things that you might want to say um, that wouldn't be bad, but just aren't therapeutic. It's like, do I, do I need to know that? Um, but with Jacqueline, um, you know, we had a, a um, existing relationship. I had seen her for quite a while when I um, was getting ready to hospitalize her. And then um, I did tell her that my, uh, my wife was pregnant with our, our first child yeah. now. Um, and I had been meaning to do that at some point anyway. Um, and it felt like in the moment that was right. Um, is it like textbook? Probably not. Um, well, it seemed like it turned her around. Yeah, it did know? help, you know. And, and I think, too, um, that's try part of what I try to do as a therapist just in general uh, is, is be a, a real person, you know, um, to not... Um, I may not, like, answer every question a client has, but I don't want to make them feel bad for, for asking them. Because it is a sort of a fundamentally imbalanced relationship, and part of that's what's necessary for me to do my work. Um, but if there are ways that I can alleviate that that still um, respect the boundaries I need to, to do the work properly, I think it's fine. Yeah, every therapist I've had has always given me, like, real-life examples. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some no, things that they've, mm -hmm. that they've experienced or like I did cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy and they would talk about ways that they could practice it in their lives and, mm. and tie it over to me. Okay. I had totally different experience. There mm. was like a wall mm. and I didn't know if that was standard I, practice, how they were taught or... I think yeah. it just depends. It does. You know, I mean, that's what Freud said you should do and he had theoretical reasons for that. The idea was that if you were sort of a, a blank slate, the, how the, the client reacted to you would sort of give you a window into how they related to other people. Um, Freud sort of theoretically talked about that. He wasn't good at doing it, um, you know, and I think if you sort of look at um, people who have written about their experiences with famous therapists, even the ones who are pretty hard-lined like that, um, you know, aren't always like that in sessions. Well, I bring it up because one of the themes it plays into is, is caseload and budget, mm -hmm. and I, I feel like with the budget slashed, clinics closing down, caseloads go up, and there's just not as much time oh, yeah. Yeah. for people to interact. And so have you had problems with clients being frustrated for not not having enough time or Yeah, I think so, you know. I mean, um I've since left the place where I wrote the, uh, where I was at when I wrote the book or where the, the cases are based on. But certainly, you know, um it would wax and wane somewhat in terms of caseload when I was there. But you know, sometimes someone would wait, you know, like three or four months to see a therapist and that's not that's crazy. Um, it's crazy, you know, it's not Right, and and I think too, even aside from like the moral stuff, which is which is important, you know, I think when someone comes in for like an intake or comes in and says I need help, like there, there's a window there of I think a week or two, you know, where someone is kind of open to to things and they're in a very vulnerable spot. And I think that if you reach them then, I think you can affect real change. And if you kind of catch up with them months down the line, you know, they may be in a different place in terms of their 
their life and their circumstances, and I think you just do people a disservice um, when you can't meet them. Well, a lot of times people are looking for help when they're in a situation that's mm -hmm. overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then you have this overwhelming situation, and then you go to get help, and then you can't get help. Yeah. And three months later, it might be that you're not in this overwhelming situation anymore, or hopefully you're not. I've had similar experiences when I, like in the 90s, I didn't have health insurance, and I used to have to go to, I'm a vet, and I used to have to go to the VA, and you would, uh, so you would go there, and you would wait like four hours, yeah. and they would like glance at you, and then be like, all right, well, you need to see this person, mm -hmm. come back in three weeks, I'm just yeah. like, really, yeah. like, that's, that's all you can do for me, you know, like, um, yeah, and it, it, I think it totally goes into what you're, what we're talking about here, because a lot of vets... I'm sure you. I, I didn't. I don't recall any of the case histories being vets, but a lot of vets end up in really bad situations because yeah. there's a huge yeah. levels of mental illness, huge levels of substance abuse for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that you know the plight of veterans really could tie in with everything you were talking about. Oh, too. certainly. Yeah. I mean, that's just yeah. from my empirical. Well, when you say substance abuse, that's like a whole another ball game. Dual diagnosis, mental illness, and addiction. Is that the majority of what you saw? Um, like uh, full tr dual diagnosis, not really. I mean, certainly I saw a lot of patients who had um, problematic relationship with substances. You know, um, I think for me, part of it was since so many of the patients I saw were had so limited means. I think you know some of them were addicts, but it wasn't from any um, like moral places to say they didn't have access to things and certainly um people had problematic substance use patterns i i we didn't do like you know substance abuse treatment um so if someone had like a mental illness and substance use i mean those things it, you know of course overlap to a you know great degree um so we would talk about that and stuff yeah do you talk a lot about like parsing out the difference between accountability and just not plain not having access, you know, because mm -hmm. there are a lot of people out there who say, you know, these people could get better mm -hmm. if they. I mean, like the just pull you pull yourself up oh, by yeah. the bootstraps, yeah. like yeah. right wing. Yeah, yes, yeah. You know, I mean, I I think, you know, it it takes a lot more than that, right? Because I do think that therapy is really important. If I didn't, I wouldn't do this. But I think, um, you know, if somebody's coming to you and they live in a community that's been deeply traumatized and there are no available jobs and you know they have difficult family relationships because of trauma and whatnot. I mean, you can treat some of that, but I mean, I can't prescribe like a, a job for somebody or, you know, um, yeah. or, uh, you know, you can work to dismantle white supremacy, but can't like, you know, could you, could you paint a picture for listeners of what a traumatized community looks like, what it means? Yeah. You know, I mean, I would have several, uh, you know, patients described to me, you know, hearing gunshots throughout the night, you know, um, uh, one told me the story that stands out to me is that there's a, a drug dealer that um, dealt across the street from where she lived, um, and she saw him get uh, shot three separate times. You know, um, and it's just you kind of marinate in this sense of like life not being safe or, or fair. You know, and it's um, a phenomenon that sort of the, the diagnosis uh, of post-traumatic stress disorder, although it's you know needed, it, it doesn't really capture because with PTSD the idea is like you know you have a pretty decent life and one or a few bad things happen to you. But if you don't ever really have a chance to develop a sense of safety or a sort of a stable home base, um, we don't have the diagnostic criteria to fully capture that. Well, let's 
Why don't you tell us a little bit about Jacqueline's story? I, that was one of the more interesting ones. Mm -hmm. I, I, I hate to say it like that. I mean, talking about someone's <laughs> lives, but I thought the story was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Had had a child. She'd had a child. Or no, she had but an abortion, correct? Um, well, she turned gender. Her, her, um, uh, a high school girlfriend had had an abortion. Oh. Oh, it was one of her false selves. Mm -hmm. Oh, she'd gotten a past girlfriend. Yes, 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 yeah, in, in high school, yeah. Yes. Um, and the, the girlfriend had an abortion, and she, um, Jacqueline didn't regret it in terms of timing, because that wasn't good timing for her. She, she wasn't ready to become a parent. Um, but she did regret that she'd never had children. And she had nieces and nephews with whom she was close, but it uh, wasn't the same. You know, and she had had a life that was really interrupted by um, trauma on a, a lot of different levels, you know. Um, she survived an attempted murder when she was in her... Um, sort of on holiday in her home country. You know, she um, thought that she was going, going home with a guy that she met in a bar, but instead he drove her to an isolated field um, and started chasing her. Um, and she survived that, but it left her scarred. You know, she still had um, uh, flashback nightmares about him chasing her. Um, you know, she grew up transgender in a family that wasn't um, fully accepting. By the time she saw me, she thought that things were pretty good with them, and I, it seemed like that was the case. But, you know, those, those wounds that of, you know, earlier, like, she talks about how, um, you know, the, the other F word was the first word, uh, one of the first words in English her father learned, you know, and even though they had a decent relationship when I saw her, you know, the, those scars don't go away, um, and there hadn't been, like, a real apology or reckoning, um, and I think that whenever they got um, upset with her, that still came out, like, when I was working with her, um, she was still uh, legally known by her dead name, and so we had talked about trying to get it changed, you know, because um, I called her by, you know, Jacqueline, um, you know, by her um, real name, but, you know, her uh, cab, you know, insurance companies and stuff like that would still call her by a dead name. Um, and her mother had a really strong reaction against that, um, you know, about her changing her name. And so at least by the time that we had closed her work out together, she's still not done so. Well, that's one of the sad things because a lot of these traumatized communities, Catholic, Baptist, mm -hmm. evangelicals, they don't accept that, mm -hmm. you know, and it's uh, it's not just those communities. It's mm -hmm. a lot of communities that, you know, have a hard time with that. But uh, I have a friend who's transgender, and, and she's African-American, and she said her family won't even talk to her. And mm -hmm. I, I, from what I've read, too, there's, like, a lot of homeless teenagers yeah, that yeah. are gay, and then their parents yeah. are like, you got to go. And yeah. so not only are you coming from a rough community, but then also, you know, you're not accepted at home or you're being abused at home yeah. in some cases. Yeah. Um, it goes on and on. Mm -hmm. But I, I always found that uh, somewhat interesting because, you know, you're being rejected not only by society in general, but, mm -hmm. like, your safe space yeah. at home. And yeah. that's got to exas exacerbate your PTSD as well. Oh, it definitely does. And I think, too, it, it, it interrupts your attachment. You know, with, with Jacqueline, it, it wasn't a dif difficult for me to draw a line from sort of those early familial experiences to the fact that she almost seemed to exclusively date men who started out great, you know, and and they would sort of move quickly and whatnot, and then they would almost to a number turn abusive, whether that was like physical or emotional or both. Um, and I, I entirely think it's because, you know, if you have this self-image of myself as being uh, unworthy or, or, uh, or lesser than, you know, the first person that tells you you're special or you're, you know, hot or whatever, um, you're, you're going to fall for that. Um, and so I totally see that as sort of establishing a pattern that um, continued up until when I was still seeing her. I'm going to read a paragraph real quick. This is uh, from page 36 from Jacqueline's story. And this, this really hit, hit me hard. It said, Jacqueline heard voices inside her head, and they were cruel. They told her that she was not really a woman but a man, that God hated her, and that she was disgusting. 
On one level, these are psychotic symptoms, a, manif a manifestation of her mental illness. At the same time, they are an eternalization of the pressures to maintain her false self. Her illness may have provided the form of her psychosis, but co culture provided its content. It's really like a, you know, you're getting attacked from both sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, what I, I was just thinking about, you know, I, I don't know if I know what my true self is, but as an adult, like, I think I know who I am and what mm -hmm. I'm about. And to have your head telling you that, mm -hmm. that that's not right. And then society telling you that's right. That's, that's a, that's a hard road. Well, yeah. And it's a conundrum for him, for you. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you help create that safe space for them other than the hour or whatever it is mm -hmm. that they're with you? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's definitely tricky. You know, I, I mean, I would always, you know, one of the things I'll tell patients, you know, I'm, I'm with you like an hour a week, uh, you know, or maybe more, but usually not. Um, you know, there's 167 other hours in the week. So, you know, what matters more is what you do when you're, when you're not here. Um, I mean, I think with Jacqueline, I tried to be more explicit cause I, um, about the fact that there wasn't anything wrong with her, you know, in, 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 um, in terms of her identity or whatnot. Um, because I think, you know, yeah, I think it's, you know, again, kind of getting back to the idea of neutrality, I think that it's, it's important for me, um, you know, to not just be like, oh, and how does that make you feel? You know, because I do think that as therapists, we carry a, an, a weight and an ability to really help people people meet people where they're at. And I think part of that is sort of working toward for justice and inclusion. Um, but it yeah. seems to me like you almost have a second full-time job being plugged in to the community enough to find places that these people can go and feel a part of something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, f for me, it just helped going to a, a good school of social work where I went to school with a lot of other really interesting people and some places I would refer her oh, to yeah. and other clients of mine were just places I where I had had colleagues who had interned or um, got services or whatever and I, I knew of. But yeah, I mean, it definitely um, requires you to kind of have an ear open for other places where you can refer. Like, like for Jacqueline, um, I referred her to Howard Brown to get hormones, which did great for her. Um, and that was because, you know, I had heard of them first because I had a colleague who interned with them. So I looked them up and like, oh, they do great stuff. All right, well, we're going to take a break now, and we'll be back with Jonathan. Let's give Jonathan a big hand. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> You're listening to I-94. We'll be right back. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And we're back. We're here at the Dial Bookshop with Jonathan Foyles discussing The City is Killing Me. Let's give Jonathan one more round of applause. <laughs> Jonathan, before the break, you mentioned Freud, and Freud came up a bit in your book. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember uh, the, the Rat Man. Yep. That, that, that study came up. I remember reading that when I was a kid. I, I love that. Uh, yeah. I love that story. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about um, your, your background and... and in psychiatry and, mm -hmm. and, and a little bit about Freud and psychoanalysis so people that aren't super familiar with it can learn a little bit about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so when I went to school, um, I went to the University of Chicago, the uh, social work school there at SSA. Um, and when you have a clinical concentration, which is what I do, it basically means you want to work with people instead of working at a policy level. Um, you have to choose sort of a, a theoretical orientation. And when I went, um, I was pretty certain that I knew what mine was going to be, but you had to take... Um, uh, sort of secondary class to round yourself out. So I took a psychodynamic course, um, which is sort of the other word for psychoanalysis. Um, 
differences are important. Um, and I just found myself really sort of gelling with the material. Um, you know, I've always loved the literature and uh, loved stories, and I felt like within the psychodynamic or psychoanalytic tradition, there was sort of a respect for people's stories, um, for helping them understand their stories better, to relate to them better, um, to understand themselves better. Um, that felt like it fit, just clicked with me on a really deep level. And so that became um, how I approached the work. And so I took more classes than that. Um, Did you, were you a fan of fiction? A big fan yeah, of yeah, fiction yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was an English major in undergrad. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So English lit. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Um, and so that clicked for me. Um, you know, and so, of course, the psychoanalytic tradition goes back to Freud. And even though a lot of what Freud um, thought we don't necessarily believe nowadays, or are, I mean, some people do, but by and large, it's, it's not um, super popular or super utilized. You know, he, he had a way of listening to people and sort of a way of, of, of writing about them um, that was problematic in some ways, but really went deeper um, and did listen to them. And I think also he established a method for listening to people that um, uh, sort of outlasted him in his life and people who followed after him, um, Donald Winnicott, Jacques Lacan. Um, Why is it so common to bash Freud uh, these days? Or you know, am I, I just imagining No, I, I don't think you're imagining it. I mean... You know, Freud makes it easy in some regards because, you know, I, I just wrapped up teaching sort of the history of psychoanalysis at, at SSA. Um, and, you know, he had this, he was very concerned about safeguarding psychoanalysis, and for him that meant safeguarding his ideas. So people that, uh, you know, made him mad or, or he felt like deviated too far from him, he was pretty quick to cut off. Um, Jung is probably the, the foremost example of that, but there are others. Um, so he was sort can be, could be kind of prickly like that personally. And, and I think, um, you know, um, a lot of his ideas about childhood sexuality, you know, I, I think the the fact that he wrote about them is important, but sort of the, what he thought, um, you know, is, is criticized rightly, I think, for being pretty um, patriarchal um, and, and not really, you know, he never really, in my to my mind, understood women, which I think is one of his biggest flaws. So he can never really write compellingly about women or women's development. Was he the one that coined the id, the ego, and superego? He sort of. Okay. So that is from his thought. I remember uh, that from, like, Psychology yeah, 101. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, one of the problems, though, is so James Strachey is a guy who's responsible for translating a lot of Freud into English, and Strachey thought that Freud needed to be more scientific than he was in his original German. Oh, I understand. So, so the terms are Strachey's. The ideas are Freud's. Um, when Freud wrote it, the id was the, um, the it, um, the ego was the I, and the um, superego was the above I. So Freud wrote in a more folksy idiom than, um, than we get in English. I think above eye sounds cooler than super ego. I think so, too. Yeah. yeah. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> so this has nothing to do with the book, but mm -hmm. the rat man story, that is bananas. It is. Yeah. And I can't remember why you tied that in. Can you remind me and, and our listeners? So the rat man story was a, a guy that was traumatized by a story that he heard during the war, correct? Yeah. yeah, in the military. Where they put a rat in a jar and put it over someone's butt, right? mm -hmm. and then the rat goes inside the person. Yep. It's like a yeah. torture method. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> One of our audience yeah. members is having a hard time. <laughs> we were just talking about before the show about things that have oh, made... Yeah. Uh, made yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not going to repeat it, but uh, things that made people faint. Yeah, I apologize. Mm -hmm. But uh, can you tell me... I forgot what the tie-in was with that story. Yeah, um, so, you know, so... The, that case study is subtitled The Case of Obsessional Neurosis. Um, you know, and, and the, the patient, you know, the rat man, as Freud calls him, um, had sort of an uneasy relationship with rats. And I had a patient who was a hoarder, um, you know, who had 
an infestation of rats, other vermin too, but, but rats is the one that I, I talked about in the book. Um, and when he first brought it up, I mean, to my mind, it's like, okay, well, what do we do to get rid of that? Let's problem solve this. Let's, you know, get exterminators or whatever. Um, but he had a real reticence to do that because he essentially regarded the rats as friends, I think, or as, um, you know, he's pretty socially isolated um, and thought they were almost like pets. And so, I mean... Um, like Willard. <laughs> yeah, I have them, but I am aware. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk uh, the next case history. This is another one that I, I found really fascinating was Robert. Mm -hmm. um, he came from Cabrini Green. My first mm -hmm. job in Chicago, I, I, I was a child care worker for DCFS, and I would take kids on their home visits mm -hmm. that lived in a group mm -hmm. home. So I went to a lot of the, yeah. the Ickes, Robert Taylor, mm -hmm. Lenny Horner, Cabrini. It's funny, too, because people always talk about how crazy Cabrini Green but I think Robert Taylor was way crazier just mm -hmm. from my experience of walking in and out of there. Also buying drugs in the 90s. Um, we used to have to go to some of those places. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so he, one of the first encounters you had with him, oh, I'm sorry, when he was assessed, he said mm -hmm. that he, I, I just want to find this really mm -hmm. quick. He was born to an African prince via injury in vitro fertilization roughly 50 years ago, but was kidnapped from the hospital while a newborn by African-Americans who were seeking to overthrow his royal father's reign. And then, now, were these, I don't know what you want to, what, what would you call that? Delusions. Delusions. Yeah, yeah. Do these delusions, did that stem from his illness? And how, how would you even begin to wrap your head around uh, treating someone that has those kind mm -hmm. of delusions? I, mean, I think for me, when I, when I was working with Robert, I, I tried, especially in the beginning, just to let him talk. Um, because I, I felt confident I could help him in some ways, but I, I knew I needed to hear more before, before I could do so. Um, and he, he clearly had a need to talk. He's, you, know, you have some clients who will come in, and um, you know, it's a very interactive, kind of dynamic sort of session. Um, with Robert, I, I almost think I could have just kind of sat back in the corner, and it would have been okay. You know, he just had the sort of compulsion to, to talk and to share. Um, you know, I just felt more like I was more of a witness to it. So, so I just let him um, tell his story. And, and the way that I kind of came to understand it is um, I, I think that his childhood and, and his early years were so traumatized that it became easier or, or a way of coping was to, to imagine um, that the people who were uh, visiting these harms upon his body, um, uh, that they had to be torturing him in some way, you know, that his family wouldn't act like that. So had to come out with the, the story, um, you know, in a different key. He could have been a superhero or something like that, you know. Um, the particulars are important, but I think he just needed to come up with something that said that he was special and he didn't deserve it. So that's why I'm, the reason I'm asking a lot about the, you know, the therapy aspect is a lot of people, I don't think, understand the nature of a lot of these mm -hmm, things. And, mm -hmm. and I'm sure even you being a... a, a a licensed therapist, it's probably hard to understand some of these oh, yeah. things. Cause yeah, definitely. We talked about earlier, you know, the, the human brain is it's still largely untapped. Like mm -hmm. well, I think a lot of people's reaction to that would be to burst the bubble, mm -hmm. get them out of the fantasy. Is is was that a goal or no? You, you I do, mean, you don't need that. That's never really helpful. You know, like as, as we'll tell people, like if you think that. Um, you know, like, let's say a common delusion is, like, the government or somebody's, like, surveying yeah. you, you know, and if you meet a guy you don't, or a girl, you don't really know that well, and they're like, no, that's not actually true, you know, are you more likely to, to listen to them or to think, like, oh, they're part of the conspiracy, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's sort of, you know, something you're told often is to not challenge someone's delusional system. Um, but, but I think, yeah, with Robert, it just didn't make sense anyway. 
There's actually I, I there's a paragraph discussing that. Mm-hmm. He said, for these reasons, I largely chose not to challenge Robert on the the complex of beliefs that guided his life. Rather, I focused on helping him to live better within the world he had created. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing. In what ways were you able to do that? Yeah, you know, so I think one of the concerns Robert had is that people who um, were affiliated with his abusive family uh, or uh, abusive kidnappers and uh, lived in the same building as, hi- as him. And I'm not sure if that was true or not, but um, since he felt like that, that was all that mattered. Um, so, you know, we would talk about, well, how, where do you feel safe? You know, and how, how can you create spaces where you might feel safe? You know, and Robert was somebody who kind of arrived with an interest in, uh, you know, homeopathy and, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, essential oils and stuff like that were really meaningful to him. So it's like, okay, well, what can you, you know, do with that or burn a candle or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, but um, what can you do for yourself that helps? A lot of this stuff has to be really taxing on you. How how, how do you um, basically take mm-hmm. care of yourself yeah. and and leave it at work? Is that is that a struggle for you? Um, it can be. You know, I mean, I, I think I've gotten better at it over time. Um, you know, I mean, I think there's no magic to it necessarily you know I, I think it just involves um you know listening to, to people's stories in a certain way you know um it you always have a therapists often have a, have a compulsion to do like as much as they can um but you have to not hold yourself back um but you know to realize that i i can't fix everything you know um and just to have a sort of a sense of humility i guess about what you can accomplish within the the frame of therapy within the 50 minutes or whatever you get with the client. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, yeah, just to have a life outside of, of work because it can consume you if you let it. But, you know, I'm sure realistic expectations probably are helpful. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Can't save the world. No. Um, so in the conclusion of your book, you know, you said that you want to present these case histories, but also that, you know, not all, half of them are roughly, you know, it's, kind of on the rough side, and then the other mm-hmm. half, you know, there was positive, but, you know, mm-hmm. you had positivity. Let's talk about probably if you can pull it or if you can think about, like, what would be the most positive story out of the book, in your opinion? Um, or a couple, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah, you know, um, I'm always impressed by Jacqueline. You know, I'm not, I'm not seeing her anymore because of a, a job switch. Um, but just even though we, we didn't end with, like, some sort of, nice tidy narrative of her like sort of just being okay and everything being beautiful um she was surviving and and thriving in ways and um was living into her true identity in a way that she hadn't in a while um you know and and i i just you know always think of that you know and and i think too um you know uh uh, with robert you know we, we ended our treatment with him because of an insurance issue um which is sort of a a Sad. Hurt, yeah. yeah, you know, a sad facet of this work. Um, uh, but, you know, towards the end, he had achieved a, a real sense of peace. You know, I mean, he was uh, working on a degree in, like, homeopathy or something like that that was really meaningful to him. Um, and just, ha- you know, was pretty much at peace and seemed to be okay. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to get back into uh, the title mm-hmm. a little bit. Again, it's The City is Killing Me, Community, Trauma, and Toxic Stress in Urban America. And the title implies that the city in some ways is responsible mm-hmm. for that trauma and, mm-hmm. and that stress. 
Can you talk about what the city has done, what it's doing, and, and where it might be going or where you want it to go in terms of treating the problem? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, policy decisions don't happen in a vacuum, right? So you close 50 schools, you close six mental health centers, you know, um, these sort of things impact people. And so I, w I wanted to put a human face to some of that because I think it's easy to throw out, like, facts and figures and whatnot, but when people's stories are a little bit harder to, to dismiss and harder to, to um, uh, ignore. Um, and I guess, so I, I thought just narratively that made sense, you know. And, and I think, yeah, we're, um, you know, Chicago, I, I love living here, and it is in many ways a great city, but, um, you know, especially over the past, you know, decade or two, it's become a city that's really good for, you know, big business and, and people of means and sort of increasingly, increasingly becoming more and more hostile to, um, you know, a lot of people of color and people of uh, lower socioeconomic status and whatnot. Um, and I think, you know, we have to ask some of these hard questions about what are we, you know, what are sort of the logical outcomes of these things that we do and these decisions we make. What What is Mayor Lightfoot's position on um, this stuff? It's a little tricky to discern, you know. I mean, I think... It's kind of early in the game. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a little early in the game. And, you know, um, it seems, you know, it seems as if she's made some policy promises when she was running that seemed to be... Um, unclear whether or not she actually plans on... Was one of them reopening? Yeah, she did yeah. say she'd reopen them, and it doesn't appear as if she's going to do that right now. Um, I, I have to have libraries open on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, Shut I, up, I'm going to end up... <laughs> <laughs> Sender's bodyguard <laughs> over my house. Don't you work for us? Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think we need something like reopening the clinics. I don't necessarily think that just a simple return of the status quo is what we need, because that wasn't working for people either. I think we... Uh, need imagination and creativity. Um, you know, I, I've written about the Kedzie Center and what they do, and they inspire me, and I think we need more places like that, and, and also just more. Can you talk a little bit yeah, real yeah. quick about the Kedzie Center? Yeah, so the Kedzie Center is a community mental health center in uh, the, sort of the North Center area, and basically how they're organized um, is people in their, what we call their catchment areas, people that can receive services from there, um, agreed to a small increase in their property taxes. It ends up being about, I think, 16 dollars a year per uh, per homeowner or whatever um to fund a community mental health center in the neighborhood and so anybody there can receive services so you can go there with your blue cross blue shield ppo and receive services but if you don't um have insurance or you have bad insurance um they'll still see you there um i think that's an exciting model yeah is it free if you don't have insurance yeah. is it oh yeah. that's amazing is it qualified well, you just have just to live that? in a certain zone mm -hmm. okay yeah uh, that's a good question <laughs> i mean they, they are doing it yeah they are doing it to an extent yeah, that's um, a million dollars sorry uh are we're working on developing one in lawndale i know from what i've been told it should be open already i don't have confirmation on that um and they passed a resolution to um open one in like uh logan square avondale type area um yeah i think it's a great model and i think we should have more of them do you want to open it up to, uh, to any questions? Well, everyone here is Jonathan's friend oh, so <laughs> <laughs> and wife. So uh, unless Aaron and Mary, do you guys have any questions? Okay. Well, let's take another case history. Mm -hmm. Why don't we talk about Lewis? Mm -hmm. oh, oh, Lewis was the rat. Yeah, oh, yeah, was, yeah. Sorry about that. Let's pick somebody up. How about Frida? Why don't mm -hmm. you tell us Frida's story, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, we have some Frida fans up front, I see. <laughs> uh, Frida's also the name of our dog. I, oh, I, tried to, uh, I tried to choose names <laughs> that I wouldn't forget when I'm talking about them. So, uh, so 
I wouldn't slip into the real name. You could um, have named uh, after my dogs Cupcake and Knuckles. There you go. <laughs> yeah, next book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Frida was DCFS involved. Her two daughters were taken away from her um, due to um, an issue of neglect. Um, I saw her about six months after that happened. Um, right around the time they were taken away, her um, father had passed away. Um, someone, at the time, somewhat mysterious reasons, in hindsight probably not, um, but he had been found dead in her home, and so there were some concerns that she also ne neglected him or, or um, didn't sort of uh, help him as, as needed. So there's a lot of um, reticence to, to give her her children back. Um, and as I worked with Frida, you know, one of the things that struck me is um, she had never really been parented, so she didn't really know how to parent well. Um, and certainly there were um, deficits, deficits in her parenting and things she wasn't doing very well, um, but it didn't stem from any, like, malfeasance or um, sort of intent to cause harm, um, but just she simply didn't know and she needed to, to be taught. But unfortunately, the system that we have doesn't do a, a good job of that. You know, about 75% of DCFS cases um, are due to issues of neglect. Um, but the system is really made to save kids from like physical and sexual abuse, which is important, but the problem is neglect is um, often not the result of intentional harm, but the result of like a lack of means or a lack of education. And so the way that we have the system set up right now doesn't really um, do those things very well. I remember when I worked in the, uh, when I worked in the child care facilities, I'm going to try to change his name, Daniel, this kid named Daniel, his parent his mother was a drug dealer and he came up very spoiled and had everything mm -hmm. um and his mom got popped and she went to jail and then he ended up in dcfs system mm -hmm. and he was just not having it yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah he came from like a very nice house mm -hmm. he was spoiled and you know he ended up in this group home it was very challenging for him because he was not coming from a um you know I, I, it was considered neglect because mm -hmm. she was breaking the law mm -hmm. But I want to ask you, you know, there's a very fine line when we talk about these things because, you know, if someone is mentally ill or a substance abuser or both or, you know, coming from not having any parenting skills, it's got to be extraordinarily complicated for DCFS to, yeah. like, try yeah. to sort all this out. Yeah. And so the system's completely broken. It is, yeah. And I'm, I mean, for Is the there an education arm? Um. Yes, I mean, certainly, like, like Frida was enrolled in, like, parenting classes and such, but, I mean, you know, this is around the time that, um, when you had Ronner refusing to, you know, assign a budget and whatnot, so, yeah. you know, she would be theoretically assigned to these classes, and they might have been helpful, but, you know, there either wasn't somebody there to staff it or the person quit, or, you know, it was only, like, once a month. Um, so, I mean, it is possible. I think it's just, you know, by and large, DCFS is, like, a rescue model, um, which is necessary in some instances, but not in a lot of them, and so it's not always equipped well um, to, to help in instances like Frida. Um, and, it, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that, but, I mean, just a chronic lack of funding is um, one of them. forgot about Ron. Ugh. Oh, I know. <laughs> my skin chronic. <laughs> yeah. That's the worst. Even my friends that are, like, Republicans, they, they don't like Ron. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you brought up an interesting point. You met with all these all these patients, mm -hmm. what is the follow-up that we have in place for, for folks like this that are, that are, for lack of a better uh, explanation, on the fringes mm -hmm. or, you know, not being taken care of or need a lot of help? So, they, you know, they had therapy with you. Mm -hmm. they, they went through the therapeutic process. Um, some of them are doing well. Mm -hmm. What's the next steps for them? Is that... Yeah. 
Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Um, it's complicated. You know, I mean, I think the hard part is it is a transient population by and large. Um, you know, as people move, um, people change phone numbers. Um, people also, you know, stop answering their phones and whatnot, which is with, well within their rights. Um, so follow-up can be difficult. You know, I mean, Frida's one of them that just sort of dropped off, and I called her and emailed her um, and, and never heard back. And, you know, that's, that's okay. I mean, that, you know, that, that's her right. Um, but it is difficult, you know, and certainly I hope the, the best for her. Um, yeah. But, I mean, even people I know that are, like, middle class, they'll, I have friends, like, their mother's bipolar, and she'll mm -hmm. be on her medication, start feeling better, and then, like, go off her medication. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it's got to be just really extraordinarily difficult to keep up with these things. Especially it is, yeah. You know, and, and I think the hard part when you're in a setting like this, too, is it's you never or you very rarely lack for people in need, you know. So it's like you can try calling someone like Frida a few times, send a letter, send an email. Um, but, you know, there's probably 20 names at least on the waiting list waiting to see a therapist, um, you know. And so there's the lack, the availability of time and even just the space on your caseload, um, you know, is pretty limited. So you're, you also... Um, we just don't create the conditions to allow for much of an extensive follow-up. You also see like the glaring difference between the old model and the new model. Mm -hmm. It seemed like the solution of the old model was to take away people's will completely mm -hmm. so they, they couldn't have accountability yes. or couldn't have the chance to, to fail mm -hmm. at it. And now it's just kind of built, it seems like it's wired into to the way care is, is, yeah. is yeah. done. You know? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think um, we've gone, come a pretty long way in terms of patient rights. Um, not far enough, you know, um, but yeah. What are some of the issues? Oh, Why do you say not far enough? Uh, you know, I mean, if you could still, um, you know, like I can think of somebody, um, you know, that I've been seeing more recently who um, was in alcohol withdrawal and, and um, experienced hallucinations for the first time as part of a DTs and went to the ER and, and told them what was going on and they were convinced that she was, uh, had schizophrenia. So they put, you know, you, you can still put somebody under under a certificate, um, and so she was held for quite a while against her will, um, because and, and not treated for withdrawal. Oh, uh, not treated for withdrawals. Yeah. Um, treated, put on antipsychotics. Kill you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Put on antipsychotics um, because they thought she had schizophrenia. So you do still see stuff like that, um, and, and this is a, a patient in communities that just, um, you know, uh, yeah. So it can still happen, not as often. But yeah. This, this is. If this is too ridiculous of a question, let me know. Mm -hmm. Your point as a director of the city of Chicago's mental health facilities, mm -hmm. what would you do in a perfect world to make these things work better? Or is that yeah. unfair? Is that an unfair question? No, no, no. Question? I think you it's a good question. No. I, ask these ridiculous I mean, I think, I think the hard part is even if you undid all these sort of systemic issues is there is still also a, a lack of providers in the neighborhoods that need it most, right? Because it's like, you know, if you could sort of magically make it where everybody could see a therapist if they needed it, there just aren't enough therapists to go around still, you know? So I think you it has to um, go to, you know, how do you fund people? How do you make make people want to, uh, you know, help people in neighborhoods like this? You know, because if you go... Um, They're probably getting paid less, right? Oh, yeah, than they yeah, would yeah, if yeah, they were, yeah. you know, private practice yeah. downtown or something. Definitely. You know, it's hard to find a therapist anywhere, but, you know, like, um, you know, I think the, you know, like, the Gold Coast, I think, has like 20 times the amount of therapists per capita as like the Southwest side, you know. So um, you have some inequities just baked into the system. And so even if you were to, um, you know, pass something like Medicare for All, which I think we should do, um, you know, that doesn't really create providers where there aren't any. So we, you know, need a lot more at that level too. Yeah, because 
have health care, but nowhere to go. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, so how do you do that? Create incentives for people to become providers? Is it I mean, I think, yeah, think? I think to a degree, and we, we have some of that. You know, there's a federal program called the National Service Corps um, that will encourage you to, to work in sort of low-income communities, um, and it's, you know, pretty beneficial. Debt forgiveness um, and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, stuff like yeah. that. You know, I, I think, too, you know, um, and I don't have a, an easy answer for this, but it is a problem that a lot of, um, you know, I'm a white guy, and I think a lot of people who do this sort of work are like me, and so I think we, we need a more diverse field. Um, you know, is that changing? Um, perhaps slowly. I mean, when I was in grad school, still was majority white. Um, when I worked in group homes, it wasn't, but that's a different. It's like a much lower income yeah, scale. Yeah. Like you know, I mean, I think I made eight fifty an hour in ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven. Which yeah. you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Th so there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of African Americans in the field, and a lot of the kids were African American. But then you also had like kids that were going to college yeah. to get like a master's degree in social work. They mm -hmm. were doing that until they finished school. Um, well, Jonathan, we wanted to, and we always end the show with the author's last word. Is there anything um, that you wanted to add before we wrap it up? Um, yeah, I think you know my hopes that people read the book and aren't just like, oh, that's sad or that's uh, tragic, but you know, inspires them to do things in their their own way. And so I hope that everybody who reads it. You know, it feels like a call to action. And uh, Jonathan's book was published by Belt Publishing, and you can find it at beltpublishing.com. And do you have a website, Jonathan? Um, no. No? Yet. Yeah. Well, you better get on that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This was Thanks another so live time. episode of I-94 here at the Dow Bookshop in lovely downtown Chicago. And we'd like to thank Jonathan Foyles for being on the show. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for being here and support your local independent bookstores. I-94 is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Jonathan Foyles, author of This City is Killing Me, out now from Belt Publishing. This episode was taped in front of a live studio audience at The Dial on December 18, 2019, and originally aired on February 2, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shannon Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.